Welcome to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN, Veterans Broadcast Network. With host Ranger Doug. And here's Ranger Doug. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Ranger Doug, and welcome to Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our 37th program. Tonight we're going to be replaying a program that was recorded in February, part of our Music of War series. This is the second program. We called it Songs of Small Wars, and it has a number of features that I think you'll really like, especially Lee Greenwood and several of our colleagues and comrades talking about their reminiscences from various operations across a wide range of activities during that period. So let's enjoy the program. Over to you, General. Thank you, Ranger Doug. Last week we discussed World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, and also songs during the Cold War. Tonight we cover small wars, contingencies, peacekeeping operations, whatever you want to frame that particular engagement by the GIs of the United States of America. It's all about the power of music and war, songs that GIs identify with in combat, in training, in uniform, or when they take their uniform off. How music motivates relates to their situation as a soldier, a Marine, a sailor, airman, or a Coast Guard. Some songs strengthen morale. They bolster courage, inspire love for one's buddy or for one's country. Our flag, a unit patch, a skill set, one's generation after generation of service in their family. Music inspires a GI over there with love for family back home, or one's home in the land of the free. Songs are written about certain wars, small conflicts, in a positive or even a negative way, about bravery, sacrifice, and, of course, duty. Tonight, in our part two, we will focus on Korea after the war, the DMZ day. Continuing still today, discussions on uh, Operation Eagle Claw, Grenada, El Sal, Haiti, Somalia, Panama, Bosnia-Herzegovina, and Syria. Back to you, Ranger Doug. We have the great honor tonight of having an idol of mine, a music idol anyway, and uh, a person that everyone will recognize for a number of wonderful, famous songs that are very patriotic. We're lucky to have him with us tonight. Lee Greenwood. But I'd like to pass you, Lee, off to General Grange, who will do the festivities. Thank you. General, over to you. Thank you, Ranger Doug. And Lee, thank you so much for being on. It's great hearing you again, your voice uh, on our program tonight. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome, sir. Thank you for having me on the show. What we'd like to start with, you have a, you have a lot of songs out there, but uh, i got to tell you, the one that GIs love, uh, I love, all my friends love, and what we use in our different units was proud to be an American. And, you know, that, there's a couple of verses in that song that uh, hit every time we're in a conflict that hit home. And after this last uh, withdrawal from uh, Afghanistan, uh, it, it, it's very fragile. It's very fragile what these verses stand for. And, like, you know, the flag still stands for freedom. You take what happens in every conflict. You know, the American flag may be the most burned, 
and, and destroyed uh, by different places around the world. But it's also the most recognized flag. And you can't say that about a lot of the, the flags. If you looked on a, a sheet of paper that showed all the flags of the world, most people can hardly recognize any of them except for it's always up there in the United States, flag of America. And that flag uh, on the shoulder of a GI in a combat situation in the field, when a little kid comes up to it or an old woman or a crippled man that's trying to scratch a living in that part of the world, and just they'll touch a GI's flag on their, sh on their shoulder. Usually it's on your, on your right shoulder. And it's because of several things. They touch it in awe. They think of freedom. They think of a second chance. They, they, they think of opportunity in that way. It just means a lot. And then, of course, it's another way when you see it over a coffin on the back of ramp of a C-130 or C-17 or uh, coming back from a foreign nation uh, from conflict. It means something there, too. Uh, it, it makes you then think about that, and I won't forget the men who died. And that's the situation like those coffins or when the flag is folded and handed to the spouse of a fallen comrade. Now, we're challenged with that sometimes, but when they hear your song, it brings it back to most American citizens. So I'd like to just go into a, a story, and then I'm going to ask for your comments, if you don't mind, about Pratt and being American. But we were up at a DMZ in the fall, around November of uh, 1988, you were on a USO, USO tour. You actually were were uh, asked to do that by the U.S. Air Force, but we stole you from the Air Force and talked uh, your people into coming up that were with you and your band to the DMZ. You were going up there anyway. My battalion was on the DMZ at that time, and you graciously agreed to do so. Now, on that tour, I don't believe that you had the instruments at that time with you. So I asked my adjutant, I said, uh, what do you mean they don't have any, any instruments to play? It's Lee Greenwood. What are you talking about? And I, I can't remember the situation, but we, we, we hustled to get guitars and other pieces of equipment from the uh, recreational uh, groups there in the, in the bases. And they weren't the best, best equipment. But we got them for your band, and you guys made it happen. We were up on a DMZ, and we I asked my logistics officer that we needed a stage. So we found rocket crate boxes, and we built the stage that afternoon that, so it would be there when you got up there on a DMZ. And then uh, we had as many of the battalion guys that weren't on patrol in the DMZ or outpost to gather around the stage to listen to your team play several songs. But the one that hit home for me for the rest of my life was Proud to Be an American because when that, that was the third song you played. And when that song was played, you sang that song. I got notified by, again, the agent came running out and whispered in my ear that my wife was going into labor down at Yonsan Military Hospital in Seoul. <clears throat> and then I had to get there immediately. And you played that song. I went up to the stage. I gave you one of our first rock coins. And you whispered to me, hope it's a son. No, you whispered, have a son. That's right. It was have a son. Huh? Later you gave me a picture with that on it. 
Anyway, the, the assistant division commander luckily was there. He gave me a hop on his helicopter. I jumped on with my web gear and helmet and everything and flew down there, and I made it by about five minutes. <laughs> I made it in time for the birth, birth of my first son, David, David Grange, Jr., and, uh, and then you gave me that picture. And I'll never forget that. So, yes, that, that I told a story a little bit about me, but that whole battalion was just so happy that you came up there and did that, that show just for our battalion on the DMZ. So, Lee, thank you for that. I am, first of all, privileged to be on the show. Thank you for having me uh, here. And General Granger, I, I, I certainly remember those moments very vividly. Um, when we were on the USO tour with the United States Air Force, taking a fellow around the world, and and uh, I remember you had asked, the Army had said, can you come up and visit the DMZ? And, of course, I agreed immediately. Unfortunately, I had no clothes that uh, I could change into but what I was wearing. And, uh, and I had one of these decorated uh, jackets, a jean jacket with a, with a wolf on the back. And, and, and I remember, you know, I said, I have nothing else. You know, I, said, I can put on some kind of Army, Army jacket, and you said, wear it. And so we went into the building, and I, I remember a North Korean officer outside the building looked in and kind of smirked at us, and one of your staff got a picture of him. He was gone the next day. That, that was kind of cool. Um, but, of course, visiting the DMZ was, was serious as a heart attack for me. I, you know, I recognized the tenseness uh, there even at that time, and, you know, here we are still another page of history, and it's, nothing seems to have changed, you know. That our, and, and what's good about that is that our military hasn't really changed. It's always serious when they're, we're talking about combat zones or places that they're in danger. Uh, they're all about business, and, and that's what makes me so proud most of all. And, of course, as you know, I wrote the song, God Bless the USA, and uh, everybody remembers the line, proud to be an American. And the reason I wrote that was because I was very proud, even you know, being from, from a farm in California, not serving in the military, of my father, who joined the Navy after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and I was born in 42, so um, he was deployed at the time. And I got to meet him later in life because uh, my mother and father divorced, as what happened a lot in war zones and in, in combat deployment. You, you, you know, families fall apart. Uh, but I was raised with a lot of love with my grandparents, and I guess maybe that, that kind of support always let me know that as long as you're in a free country, you can do anything you want. And I left home at 16 and spent a lot of years in Nevada before I got my career in Tennessee as a, as a country artist. And, and, and then asking to go to a place that is a war zone for our soldiers, man, I go in a heartbeat. And, and uh, I kind of miss not being in the military, but I've met so many people like you, General, and, and, and many more. And, and let me just add this as a note. I, I was proud to be an opening act for your son, David. Uh, and that's a, a little humor there, I guess. But uh, I know you did. I know you did have to go, and you're very courteous, and, and you gave me your challenge coin, and I appreciate that. I still have it. Well, thanks for that. You know, just a couple of things. Lee and I both have World War II vet fathers, so that's important to both of us, and a, a little bonding there. Lee, I believe that on one of your USO shows, uh, maybe Panama, that you actually came under fire or something happened while you were down there. Can you tell us that real quick? Yeah, that was uh, interesting. I always, when I'm I'm with the military, I'm not afraid. If we we come under siege or whatever, give me a gun. Let me, you know, let me do defend ourselves. And but in this particular case, we landed um, immediately, and my band got in a Chinook helicopter and went off to the first location. We did three shows before the invasion to take uh, Noriega out, and we were asked to to go down there by President Bush, who called me at my office. And we were very close, forty one, and so I got in a jeep with a soldier, and I had a, a letter from the president. 
uh, to take the 200 Marines in the jungle. And so we were, we're driving through the territory that was supposed to be secured, and we came under fire, and uh, bullets whizzing through the Jeep. Took my driver's index finger off, and uh, I grabbed it and put it like a, a pressure tourniquet on it with my hand so it wouldn't bleed out, and uh, we just kept going. And finally, uh, we got to the compound, and the Marines fanned out and just took them out. There were a couple of rebels, you know, maybe a dozen of them, and they, they took them all out, so we were no longer under danger. But that was the only time ever, and I've been in all this, you know, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Pakistan, and places where the Taliban flags were flying. and But only Panama was the place that I got so close to the war that it was just like, you know, give me a gun. I'll, I'll hold myself out here. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, hua to you. <laughs> well done. And, and Thank you. Buddy aid you. You provided to your driver. That was great. And i tell you, when uh, people don't get motivated, proud to be an American, and ruck up and move out, uh, then if they don't get motivated, they got to go back to basic training because I just can't understand it because it is a combat multiplier, that song. I love it. I'd like to turn it over to uh, to Ranger Doug now. He has a, a few other things for, uh, for Lee. Ranger Doug? Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I wanted to also ask a bit about this new Bible that you've put out that to me is fascinating, and I'm ordering a copy tonight. I've heard you describe it on the radio. Can you give us a little of the background? I think it's a fascinating idea for anyone in America these days. In fact, anyone in the world who's interested in America. Over to you, Lee. Thank you very much. Since I was a, a little kid, I was raised in the First Baptist Church out in Sacramento, and I used to sing there when I was 10 year old and 14 before I left home. And we have a Bible power bed that we always refer to in the evening for saying prayers or in the morning. And I thought to myself, you know, of all of the times that I've performed, I, I remember people who are, are, are patriotic, but more than that, there are people who want to remember how this country got started. They refer to things uh, like maybe your song should be the national anthem. And I said, well, do you not remember why the national anthem was played? It's because this country became a country at Fort McHenry, you know, when we, we were able to say we are in an independent country. You never want to get rid of that. So in releasing a new Bible, which is the actual King James Version, Old and New Testament, exactly as it should be, uh, on the front cover, which is leather-bound, it says, a, you, a God Bless the USA Bible. In the back of the Bible, we've included the four documents that I feel are important, and that is the Pledge of Allegiance, the Declaration of Independence, uh, the uh, Bill of Rights, uh, and the uh, Constitution, and a readable version, so that it's not so tiny you can't see it. So I, I, I think if, if someone's to want to make sure that their children understand, and you can't get to Washington, D.C. and see those, those documents in person... Pick up this Bible, get it from our website, LouGamewood.com, and we'll send you one. Well, that's great. And I've uh, been with Dave and others on a number of occasions where we've, we've sung and listened to your song, and I just want you to know that we'd gladly stand up next to you as defenders still today, because there is no doubt we love this land. God bless the USA. Thank you. And, and as I'm calling you from a place far away from my home in Tennessee, I, I would tell you that worldwide, America is respected and because of the sacrifice of our military. And I encourage all these young men and women who are in the military, stand tall, stand proud. This country is behind you 100%. Don't worry about it. We were all there for you and for the veterans who have been there in combat and you're either suffering from a physical wound or a PTSD, an, in, an invisible wound, reach out for help. Reach out to another veteran, maybe the DAV, somebody who can help you because we love you and we honor you for all of your service. Thank you again, Lee. General, over to you to conclude. Yeah, thank you, Lee. My son and myself, I told him the story. He has the picture. He'll never forget uh, what you did. Uh, being born in a, in a Korea in a military, U.S. military hospital and uh, 
And then I have a great picture of him and my dad and myself on the TMZ. Uh, it's a little cold wow. when we were there, even though, yeah, it's uh, standing there with the, the enemy in the back, uh, background of the picture. And uh, uh, that was right after you, right after your visit, uh, maybe, uh, I think, two weeks. He was on the DMC, <laughs> uh, you know, with the North Koreans looking at him. But that's okay. I was on one flank and, and uh, holding him, and so was my dad, who's still alive. So, Lee, if you were going to join the service today, which service would you be a part of? Well, let me preface the answer by saying that I have friends not just in the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Coast Guard, and in the Space Force. I mean, my father served the Navy, and my godfather of my sons is a former three-star, Don Rogers, married to June Scobie, the widow of Dick Scobie, the pilot of the Challenger. An awful lot in my life, four Air Force jets. You know, I've shot an M1 tank out at Barstow. So it, it, it's easy for me, however, to look back at my life when I started at 16 years old, leaving home. I would have joined the Marines in a heartbeat. I like first in, last out. I like to take the brunt of the uh, of the challenge to defend America. So it would be the Marines. You know, that's a great answer. And I'll tell you why I would have guessed that is because you were in combat with the Marines. Yeah. And that's the motivator because you never forget that brotherhood in that regard. So I shouldn't say yeah. hua. I should say hoorah. To you, Lee. Great answer. <laughs> Thank you. Hoorah. Rangers, take the way. Thanks again, and uh, we love you, brother. Thank you. Thank you, General. Bye-bye. Thank you, Lee. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. I think my lucky stars... You've been living here today Where the flag still stands for freedom And they can't take that away And I'm proud to be an American Where at least I know I'm free And I won't forget the men who died Who gave that right to me And I gladly stand up Defend her still today Cause there ain't no, no doubt, doubt I love this I love this land God bless the USA Wow, that was incredible. Thank you so much. We were so fortunate to have Lee Greenwood join us. Thank you, Lee, and your whole organization. Now let's listen to a commercial. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN, Veterans Broadcast Network. We'll be right back. The trucking industry was born by the military during World War I and therefore became the father of the trucking industry. Being a truck driver achieved national attention in the 1960s, when songs and movies included truck driving as a part of the storyline. If you're looking for an easy job that pays well, then GTS Transportation is looking for you. GTS Transportation is a leading transportation company with a great history. We are an international company with opportunities all around the world. Apply now by going to our website, gtscarrier.com, or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Apply now and become a part of truck driving history. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. 
High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated. It's cumbersome and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application in identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. Veterans Radio Hour with host General David Grange. We are changing the world one show at a time. No soldier left behind. We are here for you. Welcome back from that commercial. This is Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is a re-airing of our 14th program, the Music of War Part 2, Songs of Small Wars. On the 4th of November, 1979, the Iranian student organization seized our embassy in Tehran. This led to a mission that became known later as Task Force or Operation Eagle Claw, which was our attempt under President Jimmy Carter to rescue those hostages, ultimately culminating in the raid attempt that was aborted on 24 April 1980. We have two members of that force with us tonight. One is Rick Lamb, who's a a regular, and the other is General Grange himself. Uh, Rick I would like to ask you to describe aspects of the mission you'd like to share with us, and then I'll ask General Grange the same thing. Over to you, Rick. Eagle Claw, you know, the mission notwithstanding, um, was just the, the atmosphere of the company. Uh, Hard Rock Charlie in 1979 and, and, and 80. I mean, combat application dictated everything that we did. The, uh, the pr- we had perimeter PT. It was either 9 or 13 miles around the, uh, the perimeter there at Hunter Army Airfield. And it was focused on shoot, move, communicate, and medevac. The uh, casually, you know, casually care. I mean, the, 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 every every time we went around that perimeter road, the medic knew he was going to get a stick, and uh, because somebody was going to go down. Uh, we had a uh, we had a political commissar, and it was our supply sergeant, and uh, he would get up in front of the formation, and uh, he would cover world events, and he'd you know tell us that the socialists and the communists are stoking brush fire wars in Latin America and Africa. Rangers, we got to be ready to move. Islamic terrorists in the uh, in the Middle East were uh, you know, were kidnapping generals. They were uh, they were bombing buildings. They were hijacking planes. We have to be ready to move. And he alerted us to the threats across the entire globe and the requirements to be ready to go any any time, any place, anywhere. And that was not common in the regular force. I mean, the regular force you worked for passes and promotions, and that was pretty much it. I mean, you didn't clean the track or the tank to uh, because you had to take it to combat. You had to clean it for an inspection, and uh, that was um, that was the way it was done. I mean, the books that the old man had us reading from Five Fingers, a cask of the Eternal Mercenary, a Soldier of Fortune, it just kept our heads in the game all the time. 
and the, the movies. I think we went as, a, as an entire company to Deer Hunter at Apocalypse Now, and uh, I'd never seen anything like that in uh, in my career. But the, uh, the the preparation for that mission, I know we've covered it on other podcasts. Um, just you know, totally broke the mold on how we were going to do it and uh, how we were going to task organize the, uh, the, the, the the tactics, techniques, and procedures we were going to use. You know, it was the first use of Jeeps, motorcycles, and then we had to put the Jeeps and the motorcycles on helicopters, on airplanes. We had to figure out those load plans, the center, the center balance, how many people were going to get on the vehicles. First, we had to figure out who was going to drive them, who was going to TC them, and how we were going to maintain them because, you know, rangers at that time were came out of the swamps and we got into trucks. That was the first use of, of vehicles. So all of that was um, you know, who were the best machine gunners, the best snipers, and the task organization actually used to, to, to use the rangers to conduct that mission, airfield seizures. Uh, we had not done an airfield seizure, so uh, we were working with the PJs, working with the, uh, the combat controllers, uh, working with the AFSOC guys, and uh, bringing in new weapons systems. So all of that was uh, was Eagle Claw. I mean, Eagle Claw was probably the birth of the modern day Ranger. But uh, but again, the mission notwithstanding, it was the uh, the atmosphere in that company, the leadership in that company. It was Hard Rock Charlie that uh, that, that broke that mold. Um, and it even filtered down to the music. I know this is about music, but uh, Warren Zevon had, uh, had had just cut an album. I think that. Uh, it had, you know, bring lawyers, guns, and money. It had the uh, rolling the headless Thompson gunner. It had uh, strength and muscle. It's jungle work, and uh, that was this type of stuff that we read, that we slept with, that and that we listened to. If that makes sense, it makes perfect sense, Rick. And I think uh, it's a very, very trenchant observation, as we'd say. General Greg, how about you, sir? Yeah, thank you. And uh, Rick said it all. But uh, Hard Rock Charlie, everybody, and part of that team. We lived and breathed the unit, and we we were fortunate to have that mission. Uh, our company had that mission, and I was fortunate to, to be the company commander. My best duty assignment in the military, and no one told us how to do things. They told us what had to be done, and we were allowed to figure it out and make it happen through all the ranks in that company, from private up through captain, we were able to do it. And not with the best equipment at times, but we had priority of training. We did no other duty but train for that mission. And we trained with the best Air Force, the other military units, Marines, Navy, other other pieces of the, the joint force above us constantly. Maybe not as well as we could have. But with the constraints that we had, the equipment we had, uh, that's that's what we were given to do the mission. The morale was unbelievable. People didn't want to leave the unit at the end of the day. I remember sleeping on a cot in the, in the orderly room almost every night uh, preparing for, for that mission. Uh, everybody just wanted to perfect our, our ability to accomplish it. We lived and breathed it. I remember being alerted actually at Thanksgiving dinner at my dad's house when he was CG at Fort Benning in quarters one, and a uh, civilian plane picked me up, moved me back to Hunter Army Airfield in Savannah, Georgia. We got the mission. We started the train. The reason we got the mission, the reason we got the mission was because of what the training our company was able, allowed to do, the mount training, the, the uh, uh, other type of environmental training and conditions, the weaponry, weaponry training we did, the spirit of the company, 
that's why we got selected. And uh, thank God we were ready to have a start point with a, a great bunch of sergeants and troopers to accomplish that. And great lieutenants. A lot of times lieutenants are laughed at and, and uh, you know, made, made jokes of, but, you know, people have to remember that lieutenants sign for stuff, just like company commanders, and they're responsible. <laughs> and uh, we had damn good lieutenants. Was I responsible for training them? Absolutely. And uh, I, I did it the same way people trained me. And and uh, it was just a great experience. And, yes, the mission did not succeed. But what was learned from that mission was extraordinary. And if you listen to the podcast on POWs and MIAs and those that do something about it, well, Hardware Charlie was part of that group that did something about it. So thank you, Ranger Doug, for allowing me to make a few comments on that mission. Rick, thank you so much. Uh, how about telling us a bit about a song that might have focused you during that period, something you remember today, and maybe your unit shared the same feelings about it with you? Over to you, Rick. Oh, it'd have to be rolling the headless Thompson gunner. I mean, I just bought a Thompson uh, last year, and uh, it, 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 it's so much fun to take to the range, and that song is in my head every time. But no, the Warren Zevon rolling the headless Thompson gunner. Roland was a warrior from the land of the midnight sun. With a Thompson gun for hire Fighting to be done The deal was made in Denmark On a dark and stormy day So he set out for Biafra To join the bloody fray His comrades fought beside him Van Owen and the rest But of all the Thompson gunners Best. So the CIA decided they wanted Roland dead. That son of a bitch Van Owen blew off Roland's head. There you go. Thank you very much, Rick. Over to you, General. Our second guest tonight is Topper Rush, retired. Military Colonel in the United States Army, and Topper was on the operation in Grenada. It was a very unusual time because, if you recall, after Vietnam, it was kind of a stand-down period. There wasn't much money in the military. There were issues going on back home that people didn't want any more war, especially after Vietnam. And those that served, it was a funny feeling. And when Grenada came, it was a really a surprise because. We really weren't engaged in any real-world operations except for training and kind of holding the line here and there around the world. Not a lot of money to train. And when Grenada came, it came fast. And I would say we really weren't ready for it at the time, even Special Operations Command. And our guest tonight was there. I remember meeting him in a on an afternoon assault, and he came in by parachute. And so, Topper, if you would, tell us a little bit about your background and your experience in, in Grenada with the Rangers. Well, thank you, General Grange. It's a real honor to be here. Well, as you know, with our listeners, I grew up in Texas. I was the son of an oilfield roughneck who was also a World War II veteran and a farmer's daughter from a small family farm uh, in Texas, of course. I started roughnecking in the summers at age 17 as a pay for college. 
I'm fighting Texas Aggie. I was commissioned in 75. I served for over 26 years in light, airborne, mech infantry, and special operations. I was raised by the Vietnam generation of soldiers. They're combat-hardened infantrymen who never looked back, who never asked for sympathy after being spat upon on their return from the Vietnam battlefields. They always pushed us hard for excellence. I've served under many tremendous officers. You, of course, General Leach, General Kroll, General Foley, General Lindsay, General Luck, General Getz, just to name a few. But there's two officers that shaped me as a soldier and leader. That was you and General Leach. As my company commander and later battalion commander, you taught me the basics to always look down and never look up. And always, like your father, you lived the Ranger Creed. General Leach taught me battalion brigade operations. He also lived the Ranger Creed. In Grenada, I served as the principal Army air planner for the Ranger Airborne Insertion. Initially, only the first Ranger Battalion was to conduct the mission. By the time the second Ranger Battalion was brought in, the airdrop was pretty much already finalized. I was in the middle of planning with Air Force planners from 1st Al, 317th, and the 437th at the headquarters there at Fort Bragg, when our battalion commander, then Lieutenant Colonel, later Brigadier General Wes Taylor, stuck his head in the door and said, we're going to drop at 500 feet. The air planners, you know, from the Air Force, which were a little bit more laid back than the Ranger Battalion, and I were, were friends. I'd worked with them a great deal in training exercises. I knew them well. They all looked at me like I was a dead man. On the jump, while uh, assisting Air Force CCT in clearing the airfield so that the 130s could land, you may not, I guess you do recall, I ran across you, but you may not remember that uh, at the time your hands and arms were covered with blood because you were bandaging a really badly wounded operator. That's about all on the on Grenada right now. Topper, how did the jump go? <laughs> I remember seeing it actually from a different altitude, but what, how did the jump go? Well, the bottom line is the operation was a success. As is often the case in combat, however, things did not go as planned. We were supposed to drop at night, but we dropped in daylight. I was told because of a mix-up between Zulu and regular time. As we made our approach into the drop zone, we began receiving heavy air defense fires and immediately lost formation integrity. Only Colonel Taylor and his RTOs dropped on the first pass. And he and his RTOs were alone on the ground for quite a while. About that time, the AC-130 showed up and pulled our asses out of the fire. They took out the air defense guns that had been placing effective fire on the AC-130 formation. We started the second pass, and I made my jump, and I hit the ground. Everything was smoking. All the air defense systems had been neutralized. Now, even though the drop at this point, was piecemeal individual aircraft as opposed to the whole formation. 
And they lost company integrity. The individual rangers, team leaders, and squad leaders accomplished a mission. They and their aggressiveness carried the day. I will always appreciate what the AC-130 crews did. And to this day, anytime I meet an AC-130 crewman in a bar, I pay for the drinks. Well, that's that's uh, that's uh, I guess typical of combat topper. And uh, the air assault with the uh, Blackhawks was really no different on confusion, communication problems, trucks out of order. But again, all the troopers rallied at the objective and completed the mission. I remember seeing you uh, on the drop zone. A lot of that truck got dropped between helicopter blades turning on the ground. On the DZ, <laughs> amazingly, no one was hurt. Amazingly, <laughs> in that regard, but mission was accomplished. Over to you, Ranger Doug. Thanks, General Topper. How about giving us uh, a song that you remember from that period that was inspirational for you on your unit? Tell us a little bit about what it did for you. Over to you. Well, it's a little bit different than something by Warren Zevon or, or some of the other people were probably popular at the time. I was raised as a Christian. Often I have strayed from that path. But as other Christian soldiers can attest, when it comes to a combat jump, you're praying real hard. But God gives you the strength to step out of that door and to do your mission. I, I can still recall, like it was yesterday, the all-encompassing fear. And I also recall deep sadness when later, I stood beside a C-141 in the darkness as we loaded body bags onto the 141s. And the families of those soldiers had no idea of their fate. My song is, It Is Well With My Soul. It's a hymn written by Horatio Spafford in 1873 following several terrible family tragedies. I've sung it to myself many times when I was facing difficult circumstances like a close halo jump or surviving near-death experiences. Thank you, General Grange. It was an honor to be a part of this podcast. When peace like a river Attendeth my way When sorrows like sea billows roll Whatever my lot Thou hast This is Ranger Doug. I know that song well, and I, I share in all of your sentiments. Over to you, General. 
Topper, uh, great, great review and comments, and you hit home on the importance of songs to GIs. From the heart, from the soul, all about your family and your buddies. Thank you much. Rangers either way, sir. All the way. Well, that's great. Let's uh, take some time and enjoy a commercial. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. You do not want to miss what's coming next. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. If you are one of the 20 million veterans who served in the United States military, then this message is for you. During your time in the service, you might have experienced conditions and mishaps that have or will have an impact on your health and quality of life. Sometimes it takes years for these conditions to manifest themselves. Most veterans ignore the early warning signs and therefore miss opportunities that could have improved their health or extended their life. It is important that you identify underlying conditions early while you have a chance to make a difference. The VDAC software was created to help you identify presumptive service-connected conditions as well as assist you with filling out any of your VA disability forms. Not every veteran wants to file a claim. However, knowing what health issues to be aware of is an added benefit of living a long, healthy life. For those who want to file for their VA disability, the VDAC application greatly simplifies and expedites this process and therefore produces a perfectly filled out VA disability form with supporting material. For more information, go to nifv.org. Again, that's nifv.org. The goal of VDAC, the Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is to empower you, the veteran, with a quick and easy tool that aids you with filling out your VA disability forms. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again. 847-754-4667. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN. Just wait, the whitey may roam. Always a hero comes home. Tonight it's a real honor to have the son of a great friend of mine, Charlie Getz, who hired me into the job I entered after the Army. He also happens to be the brother-in-law of General Grange and brother of Holly Grange, who's also a wonderful friend of mine. So 
We're welcoming you to the program tonight, Charlie, to tell us about your experiences on Just Cause, the operation in Panama in December of 1989. Please take a moment to introduce yourself. Okay, well, uh, I'm obviously I'm Charlie Getz. I, uh, I actually enlisted into the Army in 1988, where I served as an infantryman with 1st Battalion, uh, Alpha Company 1st Battalion 175. And uh, during that time frame, I was able to, obviously able to participate in uh, Operation Just Cause uh, as a, uh, a system machine gunner on an M60 machine gun team. Um, uh, and I uh, have since uh, served uh, in the Army for, for 32 years, retiring a couple of years ago uh, as an officer, uh, Special Forces officer uh, out of U.S. SOCOM. Great. So tell us a bit about the mission itself. Okay, so uh, it was a, a pretty interesting experience, especially from my perspective, because 175, we were actually getting ready to go on block leave on 20 December uh, 1989. And, uh, of course, that's, you know, we jumped into Panama on, on early morning of 21 December. And uh, what happened is we were getting ready to uh, uh, leave for block leave. We were all sitting in the... Uh, sitting in the barracks watching the Simpsons Christmas special when we got the uh, Bravo notification, uh, which, uh, because of the timing, we knew it was uh, for real. We knew we were definitely going to war. So uh, we uh very excited. As you know, over the culture of the Ranger Regiment, you're, uh, that's all you want uh, is to, to uh, go to war, do what we're trained to do. And uh, our mission was to jump... Do a combat parachute assault on uh, Omar Torrios, Torrios International Airport in uh, uh, the Republic of Panama in order to seize the airfield uh, and eliminate any resistance on the airfield uh, to allow the 82nd Airborne Division to jump in, assemble, and move to their uh, HLZs so they could fly off to the assault objectives that they have been assigned. So, uh, uh, it was uh, quite an experience. Uh, we had a very short mission prep time, conducted our, our manifest call in freezing rain, loaded our uh, rucksacks, rigged our rucksacks, and uh, loaded the aircraft. Now, we were, we were very lucky with the uh, 1st Battalion because we, we had six C-141 aircraft for the battalion where uh, 3rd Battalion and 2nd Battalion were crammed into to C-130. So, comparatively speaking, we were pretty comfortable. Uh, when we did conduct the, uh, the combat assault, uh, it was just after uh, midnight uh, on uh, the 21st, and we jumped very low and very fast in, to assemble. Uh, we assembled on our assault objectives and uh, got minimum force requirements and moved out to our various platoon assault objectives in order to, uh, to eliminate any, uh, any threat on the uh, the military side of the international airfield. Quite a few Rangers got injured on that jump. I, I was actually one of them. Um, and uh, uh, I am proud to say that every single Ranger from 175 that was injured on the jump did indeed make it to their assault objectives and, and, and accomplish the mission that first night that we were given. So uh, that, that, is, that is a statistic that we are all very proud of. Um, following that, uh, that first night, uh, we watched the 82nd jump in, and uh, we moved off to uh, to an HLZ where we loaded aircraft and uh, flew off to Patia Airfield, 
where the SEALs had earlier uh, gotten in a considerable firefight and uh, conducted operations uh, to eliminate any uh, remaining Panamanian defense forces and, and what they called the Dignity Battalions uh, in the vicinity of Patia Airfield and continued that mission until uh, mission complete. Thank you, Charlie. That was great. Would you just take a minute and, and just give us a short remembrance of your father? Uh, General Grange had asked me to ask you that. So uh, my father, obviously uh, uh, my personal hero, he uh, uh, was a West Point graduate. He served in Special Forces as well, 10 Special Forces Group, which was the group I served in uh, in Germany, um, uh, and served uh, uh, two tours in Vietnam where he had the distinction of uh, – uh, becoming one of the most decorated soldiers, service members of, uh, for valor, uh, in the history of the U.S. military. He's very highly decorated with, uh, uh, a distinguished service cross, uh, six silver stars, uh, uh, six bronze stars for valor, and several other, uh, valor awards. Um, so, uh, what was very interesting about my father is he was, Really, what uh, everyone I have talked to that served with him would consider the uh, uh, the soldier soldier, very similar to uh, both Brigadier General Retired Grange and, and, and Lieutenant General Retired Grange. Uh, they, I think, they are all cut from the same cloth. And uh, uh, my father was obviously an incredible influence on both uh, my sister Holly and I. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons we both went into military service. And um, as well as, I think, was a great example for uh, everyone that he, he served with. Um, and he especially had a very, very soft spot for non-commissioned officers. I mean, he really, uh, he really understood uh, who was at the pointy end of the spear all the time and, and, and really stressed to me the importance of, of, of the non-commissioned officer. And, uh, it was very interesting. My father actually commissioned me in 1994 when I, when I, when I commissioned out of ROTC. And, uh, he gave me three pieces of advice that I followed religiously through my entire military career. Uh, the first was never take credit for anything that your soldiers do. Make sure that they get the credit for that. The second was, uh, Never take credit for anything you think you've done because you haven't done it. That has been off the back of somebody else, so make sure the credit goes to where it belongs. And the third was a, uh, a one-ship LZ in the high ground is better than a ten-ship LZ in the low ground. And I can promise you I've applied all of those all of those pieces of advice throughout the 32 years that I've served in the Army. I, I really agree with your assessment of your father. I knew him well. And I, I agree, he's cut from the same cloth, and I'm sure you are as well. I enjoyed working for him. He, he made the rest of my life, and I, I can't thank him and you and General Grange enough. So, General, over to you for your part tonight. Uh, thank you, uh, Ranger Doug, and uh, Charlie, great having you on the show. Just to add to your comments on your dad, uh, tough guy, hard-ass, well-decorated, courage beyond belief, volunteered for everything in the tough areas. Uh, I was a little timid asking for your sister's hand in marriage from your dad, but get through it. Anyway, the only other thing that uh, you're a great soldier just like your father, and, and 
the only thing that bothers me is uh, I didn't get to go with you on the Panama mission because I was stuck in a National War College at the time. I'll never forgive you for that. Anyway, uh, what song, Charlie, during this period of Panama do you identify with for yourself, for your soldiers, before, after the mission, during the mission? What comes to mind? What music? That's a great question. And uh, culture of the Ranger Regiment is hard charging, as you know. Everyone comes in with their own particular musical taste, but the culture of the regiment, I think, kind of drives us to a very heavy, heavy metal style of music. And, and I've given this quite a bit of thought when, when Holly reached out to me to, to, to do this podcast. And uh, ultimately, what I, what I thought, what makes me think of my time in the regiment and during this time of operation is not one of those songs. It's not Metallica. It's not ACDC, but it is actually a song I think captured it the best, especially as I look back, and that's the uh, Dire Straits songs, Brothers in Arms. And uh, every time I hear that song, I think back to 3rd Platoon Alpha Company, 175, and I still communicate with those guys. And, and this song, I think, captured the mood of, of that platoon throughout my tenure there from 1988 to, to 1992, uh, uh, especially after you almost killed us on that jump into Iris Gold. But uh, I, 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 I really think that's a song that captures everything. Through these fields of destruction Baptisms of fire I've witnessed your suffering As the battle reached high And In the fear and the love You did not desert me My brothers and I Really appreciate it, Charlie. Thanks for being on with us. It means a lot. Thank you, Dave, and I, I appreciate you having me on, and, and same with you, Ranger Doug. Ladies and gentlemen, I've got here tonight a very good friend of mine, Byron Conover. We served together for, for many years, and we're still good friends. Byron, how about telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, as you know, of course, I'm Byron Conover, a former Airborne Ranger Special Forces, and uh, we were involved, the country was involved in uh, conflict in El Salvador throughout the 80s. I had an opportunity to go down there. I just contacted by uh organization uh well by Delta, which asked me to come try out. Uh but then uh I was also at the same time offered an opportunity to go to the only shoot more at that time in El Salvador and I did. And I was responsible for one sixth of the country as a young major there Central Zone and uh stationed in San Vicente in a portal there and I uh, was there from uh April eighty nine to May ninety. And during the last final offensive in November 89, where uh, the guerrilla forces with the support of uh, Soviet Union via Cuba and Nicaragua threw everything ahead of us, we held them off. Thanks, Barry. Okay. How about telling us a little bit about uh, your operation there and uh, how long you stayed, what you did, and so forth? Sure. 
I uh, worked on, as I said, El Quartel, which is a Spanish word for Fort San Vicente. And uh, I had uh, three SF uh, E8s uh, working for me, one sometimes in that area, the other in Central Tepeque to the north, which was not initially had to open it up. It's a pretty combative area. And one to the south in Sacateco Luca. Uh, and additionally, I. I worked with other agencies to include the CIA who had representatives there and uh, on a regular basis. And uh, as I've mentioned, in November of 89, there was what was known as the last offensive at that time. And uh, the, the guerrilla forces went into the main city of San Salvador. In my area, they actually took over in uh, Sacateco Luca. They took over the hospital. We had to retake it again. Uh, in my area, specifically San Vicente, they came into the graveyard and we were fighting them there just on the edge of the town. Um, and it looked at, initially it looked kind of rough, but we beat them back in all places, in all cases, and it really broke their back. And that combined with what would be happening uh, with the fall of the Soviet Union, unless, of course, support uh, enabled us and the government to negotiate with the guerrillas and, uh, and come to terms, come to peace. And when did you arrive in country? Uh, my tour there was just over a year, from April 89 to April 90, or May 90. And I did have a site survey that I went on just, a, I guess, a couple months prior to that. We've been earlier in uh, February, January 89. We had an opportunity to look around and, uh, and do what a site survey entails. That's great. Well, and I was lucky enough to link back up with you just after that. So we... Uh... We had a we had a great time, and I can't thank you enough. How about a, a song that you remember that was important to you uh, at the time? Might be an old song, might be a song you heard at the time, but was there a piece of music that that was inspirational or supportive to you and or your people? Well, there are several songs, but this one is kind of ironic in a way because I I was familiar with it before, but I was uh, kind of sensitized to it and heard it again repeatedly on my site survey, uh, where the, the major I was replacing, of course, he was in a festive mood getting out of there and had more than a few drinks. And, and that night, I can remember as I, uh, as I laid down there, a little, we had a little room, and I was on the top bunk, and, uh, and we'd just been hit several days before at the hotel there. And he had just gotten to the embassy, a small TV and a, little uh, video player. Remember, this is 1989. And he, he played that night two movies over and over. Now, one was uh, John Wayne, Green Beret. And of course, you would expect to hear the Green Bay Beret, but that's not, the, that's not the song I'm referring to. He also played repeatedly several scenes from a classic movie. It's just turned about 80 years old. Uh, and uh, Casablanca. We have Humphrey Bogart and uh, uh, Claude Rains and Paul Henry and uh, I forget the woman, Edwin Bergman. And it was, and it was as time goes by, the song, I don't think he wrote it, but he, he sang it and played the piano at uh, Sashmo, Louis Armstrong. And uh, it's a beautiful song and it's a romantic song. And it's interesting, you know, that I would, think of it with that uh, in mind because for all the embattled and really terrifically horrible nature of it, I mean a war is a bad thing but a civil war is, is so much worse in so many ways 
that uh, I think of this romantic song now is uh, is kind of telling, I guess. And so I guess that's the song uh, I would suggest. You must remember this A kiss is just a kiss A sigh is just a sigh The fundamental things apply As time goes by And when two lovers woo They still say I love you On that you can rely No matter what the future brings As time goes All right, well, Byron, thank you very much. And that was Byron Conover from Bogota, Colombia, over a non-standard recording method. We're lucky to have people like that. Let's take another break for a commercial. Thank you. We'll be back in a moment. The trucking industry was born by the military during World War I and therefore became the father of the trucking industry. Being a truck driver achieved national attention in the 1960s when songs and movies included truck driving as a part of the storyline. If you're looking for an easy job that pays well, then GTS Transportation is looking for you. GTS Transportation is a leading transportation company with a great history. We are an international company with opportunities all around the world. Apply now by going to our website, gtscarrier.com, or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Apply now and become a part of truck driving history. If you are one of the 20 million veterans who served in the United States military, then this message is for you. During your time in the service, you might have experienced conditions and mishaps that have or will have an impact on your health and quality of life. Sometimes it takes years for these conditions to manifest themselves. Most veterans ignore the early warning signs and therefore miss opportunities that could have improved their health or extended their life. It is important that you identify underlying conditions early while you have a chance to make a difference. The VDAC software was created to help you identify presumptive service-connected conditions as well as assist you with filling out any of your VA disability forms. Not every veteran wants to file a claim. However, knowing what health issues to be aware of is an added benefit of living a long, healthy life. For those who want to file for their VA disability, the VDAC application greatly simplifies and expedites this process and therefore produces a perfectly filled out VA disability form with supporting material. For more information, go to nifv.org. Again, that's nifv.org. The goal of VDAC, the Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is to empower you, the veteran, with a quick and easy tool that aids you with filling out your VA disability forms. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is Ranger Doug. This is program number 14 of our Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is the second program in our series, Music of War. This one is entitled Songs of Small Wars. 
Let's listen. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've got the great honor tonight of having two Rangers who fought in that battle on October 3rd, 1993 in Mogadishu, Somalia. It's become known as Black Hawk Down. We have tonight with us Command Sergeant Major Rick Lamb, who's been with us before, and Kenny Thomas, who was a staff sergeant when he left the Army and is now, to us anyway, a famous entertainer, and you'll hear more about that in a moment. Rick, how about giving us a short background of yourself? Yeah, my name is uh, Rick Lamb. I'm a retired uh, command sergeant major. I spent 26 years in Army SOF. I served in uh, two of the three Ranger battalions, four of the five Special Forces group, and I can't believe that I got paid to do it. I would do it all over again. It was a great ride. How about a somewhat longer background of yourself, because you're not a regular. Kenny? My military time, I, I just did two enlistments, and they were both at the Ranger Regiment. It's what my dad did, what I knew to go do, and... I was an E5, kind of a new sergeant when, when Mogadishu went down, and that was, uh, Rick and I have been talking about that recently, and it's amazing how it wasn't even a full day. It was an 18-hour battle, and how here we are 30 years later, and it still defines us and, and who we are and how we approach life, and just like all the other soldiers that you've had on, how we continue to honor those people that we lost and how we live the Ranger Creed, and, and just it's for such a short amount of time of my life how immensely that time and regiment in the Rangers affected me. So it's a, it's a short description of my military career. I got to do a lot of cool things, jumped out of some planes from some really high altitudes, did some cool diving stuff when I went to the reconnaissance teams, and some of my best friends and my best memories, but it's, it's amazing to me how much that that Ranger creed has affected my life you know, 30 years later. So take some time then to describe the action in the battle itself. And at some point, I know you link up with Rick and he can take it from there. Over to you, Kenny. The 3rd of October in Mogadishu, people don't know, we have been in country for a couple months already. We run over 40-something raids into the city. We were going after this guy, Adid. Adid was a bad guy. He was a warlord. He had been attacking the United Nations uh, food shipments. And then when American troops started guarding the food shipments, he started attacking American troops. And then we were sent in as this posse, really, to go get this guy. And it was a, basically a special operations package hadn't been put together before. It was a Delta Force operators, the 160th Special Operations Air Regiment, and Rangers. And there were some, there were some Navy guys with tattoos of small sea mammals on their arms. They were there, and uh, they, don't, they don't get talked about too much. But we were all in country going after D, and he went into hiding. So it got a little bit difficult. So if we couldn't get him, we had a most wanted list, basically, Doug, is what, what I'm getting at. And on the 3rd of October, it was a Sunday, day off from training. We weren't supposed to even be working. A lot of guys were outside playing volleyball. or I was actually writing a letter home to my mom, and you know she still has the front end of the letter. Dear Mom. You would love it here in sunny Mogadishu. <laughs> you know, don't tell your mom what's going on over there because they were throwing water rounds at you every other day. It was a bad place to be. And the guy walked out of the airplane hangar and said, get it on. And that was, nope. So you drop what you're doing. And it turns out this mission was a daylight raid into the center of Mogadishu, into this area called the Bakara Market. The reason it was worth the risk of a daylight raid, obviously, we don't prefer to go in in the daytime, uh, but they there were two guys on our most wanted list that were supposed to be in that building. So the original mission, it was an air assault. So we go in, the operators, the Delta operators are going to raid the building, just kind of like a SWAT team, and then the Rangers are going to pull security around the outside of the building. 
we're going to round up the bad guys. There's a ground convoy that's supposed to show up. All the bad guys get put on the truck. That's exactly how the mission goes down. Completely successful. 3.30 in the afternoon, I remember looking at my watch. We were just about wrapped up. They brought two dozen people out of the building. Trucks drive up. They throw them on the trucks. Trucks drive away. And we're done. And then we get the confirmation that there's two, the two dudes, the HVTs were in there. We got them. Hua, 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 you know, we're, get you guys consolidated. We're getting out of here. I remember watching the last vehicle turn the corner towards the airfield. And then everybody that had a radio on, they all came alive because everybody was on the same freak. And you hear this, there's a black cock going down. It's black cock. And, you know, we all knew who it was. It was, it was six, super six one was the call sign. It was Cliff Walcott and Bull Riley were the two pilots. And we looked up and you could see him and he's, he's kind of in this weird spin. It didn't look normal and it, he, he crashes about five blocks away to the northeast and that's when everything, everything changed. And, and the whole mission changed. So the vehicles that are driven away with the prisoners are now going to reroute and they're supposed to link up with us at the crash. They're supposed to beat us there because they're not, they're only a couple blocks away. And then the 80 of us, on target, on the target building, are going to move on foot. So it's like five blocks we're going to move away. And we start moving on foot. When we turn the corner towards that crash, if you can picture Doug and, and, and General Grange, you can picture about two blocks. Just up on the right, just north of me, I could see the crash sticking out of an alleyway, and there's about 100 guys now fighting in this two-block radius. And I... You know, in retrospect, they told us we were outnumbered 10 to 1. I, I never saw 10 guys at one time. I did see twosies and threesies everywhere. And it, if we had a whole nother podcast and we had a whole nother hour, I think Rick and I could sit here and tell you stories of just absolute heroics. And I mean in the, in the, in the true definition of the word, because we throw, you know, we, we throw the word hero around quite a bit these days, it, uh, but I can tell you things that I saw that that were incredible. Just the, the links that people would go to for each other, and, and in no small part, you know, I'm gonna, and I'm gonna toss it over to Rick right now. Like just his story alone, the hell that those guys went through repeatedly getting ambushed said that he was on a reaction force trying to and it was a hodgepodge trying to come get us because at this point we had so many wounded guys at the crash site out of the 80 or 100 of us you know, there's like 40 or 50 are wounded we just couldn't move them and we needed help and these guys like Rick Lamb just kept coming and they were blown up and shot up and beat up but they you know they never gave up and they got, they finally got to us at about four in the morning and, uh, and helped us load all the wounded guys up and they drove away. And, and the plan was, and I don't, I, I'd love to hear Rick's thought on this. The plan was that we were all, the rest of us that were able to move, there were about 30 of us left. They said, okay, you're going to use these vehicles and we're going to run behind them like in World War II, like we're running behind a tank, you know, like we're going to, that's going to be our cover. And when the, when the sunlight came up, the dudes in the vehicles, man, then the, when the rounds started going again, they just hit the pedal. <clears throat> they took off like, hey, I'm a pretty fast guy, Doug, but I'm not that fast. And, and so now there's 30 of us just running, running out of the city. And, and this is, it just went, it went to that part, part of the Ranger Creed where 
readily will I display the intestinal fortitude required. Because it didn't matter how, if I yelled more loudly or, or moved more quickly, or nobody was going to come back because there just wasn't anybody left. And the 30 of us, by the grace of God, made it out. So I'd love to hear Rick's story because it's a whole other story of how he had to come in and get us and then what happened once he got all the wounded guys and headed out. Sergeant Major, your turn. Outstanding. Yeah, hey, thanks, Kenny. Yeah, my, my, my jaw's dropping here. Just remembering this stuff. I, I was a, uh, I was an 18 series guy. So I served as, a, as an 11 Bravo in, uh, in first range of battalion and then I did a tour in Korea and uh, my Sergeant Major came to me one day and he says, you four fellas, I see how you're working with the Koreans and, uh, your next stop is Special Forces. And, uh, so we were pretty much told that the recruiter was coming up and we were going to, going to SF. And, uh, so I went through the Q courses, uh, was, was not uncommon back in that day for the next rung on the ladder for the Rangers to go to the Q course and then you go back. So, uh, but some, somewhere in that, uh, in that, that whole, that whole time frame, I spent about six years in seventh group down in Panama, Special Forces branches. So I'm unable to go back to the Rangers. And I run into, uh, my old company commander, Dave Grange, and he says, not so fast. Uh, General Downing wants, uh, he doesn't like the split between the Rangers and SF. And, uh, he wants to take, um, you know, Rangers who started out in, in battalion and went to group. He wants to bring them back to the battalion in a, in a program called Crosswalk. So when I reported into Third uh, Ranger Battalion, I was uh, I was an 18 Zulu. I was a uh, Special Forces Sergeant. And uh, since I had gone to Operations and Intelligence Sergeants School, uh, I got pegged to be the Battalion Ops Sergeant um, as, as I walked in. I was supposed to go take a platoon, but uh, Sergeant Major Salinas says, nope. The, uh, we just lost our ops sergeant. You're going to do that job for a year, and then we'll send you to a platoon. So when, when I walked in, I was uh, I was the ops guy working up in battalion uh, for uh, for then Major Farader. I uh, had a great team, and uh, so we get called out, go to Mogadishu, and uh, so I've got I think the uh, the graveyard shift in the talk, which is zero two hundred to ten hundred. And uh, it's basically talk watch, and then uh, of course when when uh, the callouts would happen, every able-bodied you know ops guy would would go into the talk. And if you remember back in that day, the uh, you know, we had the big um, the big wall out, right? It had all the uh, satellite imagery on it, and the satellite imagery was gridded. So uh, you know the the, the, the drive you know, we usually uh, infill by air, reinforced by by ground, and uh, exfil either by air or by ground. So the aviators would come in, the drivers would come in, the assault teams would come in, and everybody's getting this mission um, settled. Then uh, then we'd print uh, we'd print off whatever was just uh, pieces of paper basically on a dry erase board that uh, that had copy and print capability, and the rotor blades are turning, and you guys would launch. So that's basically so you guys are out there, you're getting after it, and you're absolutely right. You know about uh, fifteen hundred, you know, we're all high five and thinking, damn, that was easy. Got the uh, you know, got got the, got the package. They're heading back, and then we saw the helicopter go down because uh, I think Mogadishu was one of the first times that you know, that we actually had um, cameras. You know, we had video feeds going into the talk, and uh, so we watch it go down. We uh, and we're looking at it, and then uh, I think it was uh, Major Nixon comes in and he says, "Rick, get every able-bodied ranger off the wall." You know, whoever wasn't out on mission was was guarding the perimeter. They were up in uh, fighting positions in those air sea land containers uh, on the wall, and uh, so we had to get everybody off the wall. We uh, we transloaded into anything that would run five tons, deuce and a halves, um, 
uh, Humvees, and uh, and we went out. And uh, so the first, uh, I think the first convoy to go out, you know, hit the K4 traffic circle, and we're heading over there, and we, we actually run into the convoy that I think was taking Blackburn off the objective. Remember, he had uh, fallen and broken his back. And uh, their their vehicles are all shot up, and I mean some of them are, are you know the vehicle is just getting to where it's, it, it it came to a stop as we roll up. We were able to transload uh, those guys, and then we get back into the uh, back into the perimeter. But by that time, the city was alive, I and mean, it was just uh, it was just crawling with bad guys. And uh, so as we go rolling in, I mean all the sideboards and our in our vehicles were shot out. I think our, our radiator had a hole in it, and so we had to go find another truck. And uh, of course, uh, the you know the vehicles that had come in from that small convoy, uh, you know, again full of blood, like in the movie. Remember, they said they washed the vehicles out, get the blood out of the vehicles. And I felt sorry for that team that had just come in because uh, you could just see the blood drain out of their face when you said, "Hey, we gotta you know, we gotta refit, rearm, and we gotta go back out there." And uh, but everybody did. I mean, we had kids that were uh, I can't remember who it was cutting a cast off. <laughs> Of his hand, of his yeah. forearm, so that he could get back into the, you get into the truck. Yes, so he could get the gun into the yeah, truck. And uh, yeah, we we took uh, that that initial air air sea land container that was in front of the hangar, and it was full of sandbags. So we started sandbagging the trucks, and uh, and we took a head count, and we we went back out the uh, the front gate, and we got we were supposed to link up with the tenth mountain who were coming down from the university, you know, the QRF. And then we both got got trounced. I mean, the, the fire was so was so thick that we had to go back inside the wire of the airport. They had to go back up to the uh, to, to the university and take that end run, that end road, remember that they had cut around the western edge of the uh, the airfield. Yeah. So they had to come down through there. We uh, we decided, okay, we're going to sneak out of the port. And uh, for that third convoy, and the third convoy was when we got the Pakistani tanks. We got the uh, the uh, Malaysian APCs, and I thought, okay, good, we're going to get some cover this time because the, uh, the, the I remember Easterbrooks was my driver, and uh, I crawled in the back of the five ton when uh, we had taken uh, we had gone through an ambush, and I was crawling out of the, the the driver's seat, getting back into the back of the vehicle to see if anybody was wounded, and the sideboards were all shot up, and all the guys got these shit eating grins because nobody nobody got hit, right? And I get back mm-hmm. into the the front seat and I look over at Eastbrooks and he is stone cold white. He's got his hands on the on the steering wheel at ten and two, and right at the twelve o'clock position on the steering wheel, the steering wheel is is snapped. You know the front the front window had been stitched, and uh, the rounds had gone through and snapped the front of the uh, you know the, the steering wheel at twelve o'clock, missed him completely, and, and he's like, I don't know what just happened. I don't know how I survived this, and. Uh, Wow, you we get to the port, and that was on the second convoy, right? The one that we where we had to you know, hightail it back in, and on the uh, the third convoy when we finally got the armored vehicles, um, you know, we I ended up with I think I had the cooks, I had the clerks, I had the uh, the ammo NCO, and we were the the ground dismounts to, to provide uh, security for the M48 uh, Pakistani tanks, and I tell you, Kenny, I, I was that's the scaredest I have ever been. Not not because of all the fire and everything, but the uh, the fact that I thought as we're pushing those kids out and getting a head count, and uh, and then we got to cl- collect them all up, get them back in the vehicles, you know, when the convoy gets ready to move again, and I thought, God damn, I'm going to leave one of these kids, 
in the street. You know, the, uh, he's going to get wounded. I'm going to miss him. He's going to step out on the out in the alleyway to take a piss, and I'm going to miss him. And uh, yeah, but yeah, that was uh, until we uh, until we linked up. Yeah, we ended up getting I think losing our vehicle somewhere around 2 a.m. I think I had been wounded. Easterbrook's wounded, and uh, we had probably one more kid in the back. And uh, yeah, it was just um, it was crazy. Isn't it incredible that the basics that they taught every one of us, just as young NCOs, that became like paramount in, in that type of situation? It wasn't the cool guy gear or the equipment or the tactics. It was it was the training. It was accountability. Shoot, move, communicate, and just. Yes. Look after one another, and that's what I, I just saw at its basic core going down. Like people, it, you would think out here in the real world that you know, you're getting fired at, you're getting shot at, you're getting blown up as people, and most people would go, "Oh my gosh, I was so scared. I just I wanted to run and hot." And what come? But what your headspace was is, oh, "I'm responsible for these guys. I can't leave anybody." That's what you're thinking. And it's a it's so core and basic to the way that you and I think, or that 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 we think as soldiers and as rangers and as operators. But it's not that way out here, and it's a um, it, it gets it's a tough and maddening conversations at times that I have with people to try and and understand. You know, it's bigger than just you. And Katie, we've had this discussion just yesterday when we uh, re- reconnected the. Uh that's why guys are killing themselves. I mean, when they lose that sense of tribe, that sense of purpose, and uh, you know, and they lose that, uh, that that faith in the system, you know, faith in God, the uh, you know, the faith, family, fitness, friends, and finances. Those five Fs. When they lose those, it's uh, it's an easy decision to to figure that the world's better off without you. But, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm I'm with you, and that's why the guys are so tight now. I mean, you know, out of the blue, my first company commander uh, calls me, and, and we're back. We're we almost complete sentences again, you know. Amazing. So, Rick, let me can I can I ask you a question? Um, so, when you guys pushed through, we heard you coming all night. You know, it was like, hey, the convoy's coming. <laughs> yeah. And then it was, yes, yeah. Let's, let's just order a pizza because these guys aren't coming anytime soon. And then it was, hey, the convoy's coming, and we could hear you throughout the night trying to get to it at the crash site. It was it was four a.m. when um, when you guys finally pushed through. Now, did, did you get to the crash site and did you help? Did your guys help load up? Because there's some 10th Mountain kids in there, and uh, there's a couple of Malaysian, uh, the APCs, and we loaded all the wounded guys and threw all the bodies on top of the vehicles, and so, you know, there was no more room in the ark. And I'm wondering, yes. I've never talked to anybody that was in that vehicle convoy that got to us. When we got there, it was exactly what you described. I mean, because some of the vehicles, you know, if, if they stopped, they weren't they weren't going again. And uh, that was ours. So uh, you know, we got to the point where um, you know our oil pan was gone. We had four run flats. The uh, there was an RPG sticking out of the you know a fin sticking out of the the, the rear fender well, and because uh, one had glanced off the hood, that was the one that took me out. And uh, so finally we uh, we just thermited the engine, and uh, so now we're on foot. And so we're trying to go around and get our wounded into the vehicles. And that was the problem. There were so many dead and wounded in those vehicles that you'd go to one and you'd bang on the hole and they'd open up and there's no room. I mean, guys are just stacked like cordwood. And, uh, and I can't remember who the, who the operator was that was stuck in the cupola. And, uh, and he was there all night. I mean, he was just ashen gray dead. 
obviously, but they hadn't been able to pull him down. And uh, he was just sprawled like, you know, the dancers with wolves on the, on the, uh, on the horse. In that, uh, and I, I can't remember who that was, but that, that, that just oh. sticks in my mind. Oh, that's the Earl Fillmore. Earl Fillmore, okay. So, uh, yeah. but it was, it was just, uh, yeah, so we, we ended up, uh, I ended up doing the Mogadishu half mile because there wasn't any, uh, there wasn't any room and then some 10th Mountain guys pulled up and said, get in the back. <laughs> and we ended up getting, uh, getting in the back of, uh, of, of a Hummer. Uh, but I do, I remember, I remember you guys run on the side because there, there was just, there was no room. Yeah, and the problem was that uh, yeah they were um, they were they were tweaking their command and control and their their reaction during all the missions that we had done previously, so they were blocking key avenues, key streets. They were burning tires. I mean, they had uh, they had you know their their communications were uh, were improving, so they were able to. And that was why we couldn't get to you guys because the uh, we kept getting turned around in these uh, in these dead alleys, dead ends, and we'd have to back out. And the whole time you're just under fire from the rooftops, from the buildings. I remember one of the. Uh, this was when we were on on foot. Easterbrooks and I, there was uh, we're hiding in a building, and there's bad guys on the roof that are shooting down at the tank, and the tank goes around and puts a main gun round in the building, and we're trying to scramble because the building's falling down on us, and because you know, they didn't know that we were there, and we didn't know that they were going to fire into the building, and uh, there was there was uh, that that whole night was was chaos. But do you remember coming out, and like you said, when the when the sun starts coming up. And uh, we we had gone from you know the Black Sea area into another neighborhood, getting closer to the soccer stadium, and they actually liked us. But uh, I remember them coming to the side of the roads, and so everybody uh, everybody comes up on on weapons again, and they're up on the rails, and they're getting ready to lay into this crowd. But they're cheering. Do you remember that? And they're actually uh, they're actually cheering the convoy as we're pulling out of there. And uh, and going into the Pakistani stadium, and then that 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 whole that whole place was uh, was just surreal. Yeah, that's a good word to put. It was a good surreal. Uh, it was like, yeah, they cross this imaginary line. Like all of a sudden, you're safe. Safe. Yes, you made it. Yeah, yeah it, it was. Wasn't it like that? Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a, it's a uh, it's a good life lesson, Rick, to, to for anybody, uh, for for our kids, for the companies we work for. Uh, as far as that the enemy did. They got better at what they do, and we forget. We forget. The enemy gets a vote. I mean, we've had that saying in yeah. Iraq, you know, the enemy gets a vote. And so let's not get we, so uh, surprised and get our panties in a wad when the enemy reacts and they change the way that we wanted to do things. And you're like, what? They're not supposed to. But they always do. And, and there's, I've, it's happened more than once. You know, where a toothless dude in sandals will discount them, <laughs> and they will hand you your lunch. Yep, yep. Don't you got it. Don't underestimate yeah. them. Hey, Rick Thomas, and Ranger Lamb. Yes, sir. Yeah, I do. Do a fascinating story. It was great. Uh, thanks so much. But I want to. You mentioned both have mentioned something, and I want to follow up on that. On Kenny, I want to. You mentioned something about the Ranger Creed: never leave a fallen comrade. And, and what you did there, and and how that affected you when you took your Ranger beret off. Can you give us a quick, a quick? Yeah, the most lasting. On, I, yeah, yeah, sir. The the. So what I'm hearing you say is that when you've lived it. At, at its core level and at, at, at what it was meant to be, the Ranger Creed, how does it affect you 
you know, down the line. And I think the most lasting lesson I've gotten out of it, is that what you're asking me, sir? Uh, yeah, please. That's very important. Okay. Yes. The, the, I think the most lasting lesson that I've gotten that the Ranger Creed has instilled in me is it's the value of the people on your left and your right and, uh, and the value that you are to them. You know, we've all been told, surround yourself with great people, but then we forget that we are the great people that others have surrounded themselves with. And that leadership responsibility, never shall I fail my comrades, is a choice. And it's a, it's a responsibility, and it's a choice. And what I go out there and I talk to people about when people start complaining about the state of things, I'm like, hey, this is leadership is never easy. And when we need you is when it's hard. We don't need you when it's easy. We can all do it ourselves. Never shall I fail my comrades. And I think that's the most lasting one that, and that, that I saw. Because what I learned, sir, that everybody that's been under fire knows is the only reason you stay in the fight is for each other. That's it. It's not. It's not for the greater glory of the Ranger Regiment. It's not for, you know, it wasn't even at that point for the mission anymore. It was just for each other. That's it. Okay. Well, you just said for each other. You just nailed it. I think there's nothing else to say. That's it. Yeah. And lead, That's a mic drop leadership. Moment. Yeah, it is. leadership is the cause. All else affect. Right on, Rick. On your yes, comments, you talked about, and Teddy did, about shoot, move, and communicate the basics. I, you know, my feeling is from Vietnam, and actually learned most of it from bad things that happened, mistakes that were made. And you know how I felt about that later on in my military service. And what, if you cannot do that, if that does not happen, Tell me your feelings that go through your mind when you see your fallen comrades in the coffin off a ramp of a C-130 or a 17 or 141 with the American flag draped over it. How does that connect your thoughts? No, it, it, it rips out your heart. I mean, the because uh, I remember we would we went and visited the guys in the morgue and. Uh, I mean, it just because uh, you know there's a difference between a live body and a dead body. I mean, a dead body looks dead, and uh, and it's cold and it's hard, and it and you can thump it, and it uh, it's like thumping the table. The uh, and then just knowing that those guys are not around anymore, you know, and just just seeing the pain that uh, that that is that's going to be with that family, you know, those those parents, those 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 um, spouses, those kids, you know, for uh, for the rest of their life, for generations. It, uh, it it rips your heart out, and, and you get angry. The um, I don't think any man was ever the same after Mogadishu. And uh, you know, it used to be that uh, you know, you'd go to the range and you could say, "Okay, we're, gentlemen, we're going to strip down to uh, to our, our our pants and, and we can go t-shirts. We're going to just do some advanced marksmanship." That stuff ended. It was uh, every range from then on out was in full kit. And, uh, full basic load, full, uh, full kit so that you knew, you know, where all your equipment was, place for everything, everything in its place, and you could actually run your weapons and work your weapons, you know, with, with body armor, with LCE, with a helmet. And, uh, you know, we never went anywhere without our nods after that. 
Yeah, you never went anywhere without without a double basic load, without more water. We uh, we quit doing the easy stuff that we liked, which was you know blow the door charge, go in, you know four man, six man, uh, serial clear the building and uh, recock the target. Let's go out and do it again. I mean, you fought onto every objective, and uh, you know, we went right back to what you had us doing in uh, in 1979, which was you know worst case, there was always a casualty. A medic always had to, uh, to to get a stick into that casually, and you had to cross-load the, uh, the equipment. So yeah, we, we, we lose that about every five years. The, uh, you know, when when, uh, when you know, death takes a holiday, and uh, and you lose that that ability. But no, I mean, we, we we would worst case for the rest of our careers. Every man, the uh, you take leaders out of the fight and you let young kids struggle. To, uh, to to step up and do it again, and uh, and again that we, we've talked about this before. That's that's my biggest fear now, is that if we're in this peacetime mode, that uh, you know Big Green can't help itself. It's going to make the kids do stupid shit, but they still have to you know shoot, move, and communicate. I mean, the leaders have to do that, and then everything else falls in after that. Rick gets a great rep. You know, the leaders are responsible for the basics: shoot, move, and communicate. And, you know, we talked about on another show, the medical piece, the first aid, the buddy aid, uh, doing what you can with what you have for for trauma, taking care of the fallen, taking care of your ranger buddy, taking care of your team. And it just goes down to that. If most mistakes, most memories uh, are from failure to do the basics. And that's the leader's responsibility. In closing on this on this segment, which was a wonderful segment, before we go back to Ranger Doug, Kenny, I want your permission to play one of your songs that inspired you, why you wrote it, why why you put it together, why you sing it, mm. tied to the Rangers. Thank you very much for everything both of you do and have done. Blood on their knuckles, mud on their face They fall back to the huddle for one last play The quarterback says, you gotta buy me sometime I can get us up, boys, if we hold the line Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thanks, General. Uh, Rick, I'd like to just ask you for a, a song that you remember from that time that provided inspiration to you or has come to mean something to you after the fact. What would that song be, Rick? Babe, I Got You, Babe, from Sonny and Cher. And the reason I say that is because the uh, we had 400 pipe hitters staging out of that airplane hangar, and the Hardy Boys had set up a movie theater in one corner with a VCR and a small, you know, tube-type TV on a, on one of those those uh, stands, and uh, we were watching, I think, um, Groundhog Day with Bill Murray uh, when the mission for the Olympic Hotel broke, and uh, and I had that song in my head the entire night, 
And, uh, you know, one of those things where it, it, it was almost, you know, getting wounded was almost a relief. <laughs> because, but I, but that's the song I had in my head the entire time. I, I wish I had a better, a better song, but when, it, you know, for you, the, the, for motivation, but, uh, that when that song plays, I, I go right back to Mogadishu. Kenny, how about you? You got a similar song, or did you share the same song with Rick? I'd probably tune that one out. You know, it's, what's funny to me is I, I've been the guy who goes overseas and plays the songs for them, and what I've seen is I can't explain it, but music, I love that you guys are doing this this thread, this like music and how it affects the combat soldier, because I don't know how it does it, but it just reaches people differently, and the story that I would tell you about the song it, it, uh, that meant the most to me that will always remind me of Mogadishu was the day after the battle, and Rick will remember this, uh, everybody was kind of dragging ass around the hangar, and we were all moping around, and we were you know, starting to feel sorry for ourselves, and everybody was super sore, and, and uh, Colonel Boykin, gets up on a little platform, and he says, hey, everybody gather around. And it was really weird because, Doug, there was, you figure there were 400 Muldoons packed in an airplane hangar, and now 100 of them are gone. And so you see a lot of empty bunks, and, and, and he stands up on this, I don't know, like a water cooler, or he's like, everybody stand around here. And he starts reading the uh, the the speech we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. As he reads it, he gets more and more intense. And he doesn't just stop when he finishes the line. And he's got it memorized. And he doesn't stop. And he goes straight into God Bless America. And everybody started singing. And it was it was the worst rendition of the song I've ever heard because everybody was out of tune, out of key, and people were crying. Yeah. But crying, I've yeah. sung that. Yeah, I've sung that song at baseball games, at football games, and it always brings me back to that hangar and how music was that was our church that was our that was our hymn right there our god bless america now that's the song for me we few we happy few we band of brothers for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother be he ne'er so vile this day shall gentle his condition and gentlemen in England, now abed, shall think themselves accursed they were not here.
Thanks, Kenny. Uh, those are two great memories, and we really appreciate what you both had to say. General, over to you. Thank you again, Ranger Thank Doug, and Ranger Kenny and Ranger Rick. Great, great stories uh, about uh, fallen comrades, the music of war, what it meant to you, what it meant to your teams, your unit, and appreciate you being on. There were two songs mentioned as part of this program that were favorites of ours in special operations during the early 80s and 90s. Roland the Headless Thompson Gunner and Strength and Muscle and Jungle Work by Warren Zevon, or Zavon as some would call him. He was a great rocker, friend of Linda Ronstadt, played with the Eagles, heck of a talent. He could write songs about special operations and soldiering and spycraft, although he never was a soldier. We loved his music and we respected him greatly. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2003 of mesothelioma, the same disease that claimed Steve McQueen. We miss him. We salute you, Warren. Rest well. On a big matter with the M16 and the Ingram gun, we parachute in, we parachute up, death from above, we're screaming now. Well, that concludes our part two of the series tonight, and thank you for being on our podcast. I appreciate it, and the best to all you veterans out there and their families. Uh, I think that we had some tremendous guests tonight. We covered some of the other conflicts that our American GIs are a part of, and it just goes to show you how songs, how music affects the life of the American GI. Well, thank you for joining us tonight, and we took great pleasure in pulling that show and, and airing it tonight. It means a lot to us, and to hear these members of our forces, our colleagues, our friends, talk about their memories, very important to the overall story of veterans. This is Ranger Doug. This was our 37th program on Veterans Radio R 2.0. We're on 14 different platforms now, from Amazon to Spotify, iHeart, and so forth. Please, if you find us in one of those, subscribe and, and let us know what you think. We also have a website, obviously, and a Facebook page. And thank you again for joining us. This is Ranger Doug out. Thank you for listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Veterans Broadcast Network, bringing you shows like Veterans Radio Hour, Wounded But Not Broken, No One Left Behind.